So yeah, last section, last uh, section in Galatians today. It's, it's pretty exciting. Um, what what I think is particularly interesting about our passage this morning is it really is kind of a mini summary of the book of Galatians that we've seen so far. Um, Honestly, if I asked you to summarize the book of Galatians in a couple sentences, you could really just read what Paul says in verses 14 through 16, and it kind of says exactly what he's been trying to argue through this entire book. Um, So before we go into those specific verses, uh, again, verse 11 and to the end of the book is sort of all the same context. In verse 11, Paul enters what could be called his concluding exhortation, his final word uh, to the Galatian church before he closes his letter. And what we see in it is exactly the same thing we've seen throughout the book. He's appealing to them to reject false teaching and hold fast to Christ. So you remember um, in Galatians 5.1, Paul sort of concluded his section on expositing the Old Testament, and, and he concludes by saying, Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. So again, he's been pounding the point that these, these Galatian Christians are free from the yoke of legalism, of works-focused religion that the Judaizers were teaching. They're free from dividing up into groups based on whether one's circumcised or not. And then uh, in, in chapter 6, verse 12, Paul sort of unmasks the motivation for this false teaching. These Judaizers, they don't care about the Galatian church. They want to make a good impression um, in the flesh. I'm going to read verse 12 again. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Again, the Judaizers, they're motivated uh, by a desire to make much of themselves, much of their own abilities. And the irony... Paul pointed out earlier in the book is if you, if you end up getting circumcised, you're actually obligated to keep the whole law. Um, so even, even these false teachers that are teaching this false gospel, they themselves can't even bear the yoke they're trying to put on other people. Uh, they're pretending to have a high view of the law, but they themselves don't even keep it. So, so that's the first sort of point in, in verses 11 through 13 that Paul makes about the Judaizers, that they uh, are selfish, they're motivated by self-glorifying motives, And the second point he makes at the end of verse 12, they want to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Um, Again, this is a self-focused motivation. They want to make much of themselves, but they also want to avoid suffering for the cross of Christ. It's all self-focused in their false teaching. Uh, Remember, in Corinthians, uh, Paul says that the message of the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks and the Jews. Uh, And the question you need to ask is, why is that? You have to remember at the time... um, Particularly, uh, as you read the book of Acts, if you preach the gospel of Christ and that you don't need circumcision, that's going to get a pretty strong reaction, particularly from the Jews. If you read Acts, you know, when Paul's evangelizing to a mixed audience, when he's teaching about Christ initially, everyone's listening. But as soon as he mentions going to the Gentiles, as soon as he, he mentions that, all the Jews, immediately it's a stumbling block for them and they want to they want to persecute him. They oppose him. Because the message of the cross in our time and in Paul's time is, is revolutionary in the sense it declares that, man, you're unable to approach God on your own merit. The only possible way of reconciliation is the death of Christ. And so this message, especially in the time that Paul is preaching, um, was really a, a, a a fast pass to persecution, if you will. And the Judaizers, by preaching Christ and circumcision, they're sort of trying to 
to avoid the offense of the cross by saying, by, by adding this, this work that was particularly appealing to Jewish converts, right? Because they uh, grew up before they were saved, uh, they, uh, they had a high view of circumcision in the Jewish community. So it's a way of avoiding some of that persecution for the cross of Christ, as Paul says in verse 12. So again, uh, if you look at the history of the church, anytime the gospel of Christ has been mixed up with this idea of human ability, it seems even more appealing. You see that in um, the Pelagian controversy when you start adding like, no, man has free will. There's an appeal to that because we want to have some ability, want to have some work for us to do. But that's not the gospel that Paul preaches and that's laid out in Galatians. So that's sort of the context. Paul's concluding first in verses 11 through 13 by unmasking the motivation of these false teachers that he's been contradicting this entire book. They're focused on themselves. They want uh, other people to think, oh, how great they are. And also they want to soften the offense of the gospel by actually changing it. And that is always a wrong way to go about things. And Paul calls that out. So now, as we go to verse 14 and following, Paul's going to contrast himself with the Judaizers. That's sort of how he closes the book. He lays out who the Judaizers are, clearly their motivations, and then he contrasts uh, his own ministry with that. So let's start with verse 14, where we sort of see Paul's boast. Verse 14, But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross, and I to the world. Um, So my translation, uh, which is Holman's, is not actually very good in that first phrase, but as for me, um, it's much better translated, God forbid. It's the strongest sort of Greek phrase, the strongest negation that Paul could use. It's the same phrase he uses in Romans where he says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound, God forbid, may it never be, very strong negation. Even in Galatians, he's used this phrase twice already. Uh, Earlier in the book, he asked, is Christ a minister of sin? God forbid. And then, uh, I believe it's in chapter 3 or 4, Paul says, is the law against the promises of God? God forbid. So again, this is a very strong negation that introduces the contracts. But as for me, God forbid, I will never boast about anything except the cross of Christ. So in using this strong phrase, Paul is contrasting his desire with those of the Judaizers. Uh, Paul is disgusted by the thought of valuing something above the cross. Uh, the behavior they just described of the Judaizers, that they're self-motivated to glorify themselves and they want to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ, that is unthinkable to Paul. He says, uh, may God forbid me from el- ever elevating self or my own comfort above the cross of Christ. So that's, that's the first point to notice in these verses. Paul begins with the strongest possible of contrasts. Paul is not setting himself as slightly different from the Judaizers, like we're kind of on the same team, we just disagree slightly here. He's saying the behavior is something I want no part of. May God keep me from ever behaving how they are behaving. So with this strong wording, the question is, why is he so vehemently against the Judaizers? Um, he spent the whole letter pointing out flaws in their teaching, Why is that so important to Paul? Why can't Paul just agree to disagree over this issue of circumcision? And the answer he ties in verse 14 is this idea of boasting. And this word boast, which is translated in my translation, it means to glory in. Paul says, God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross of Christ. For Paul, this was the heart of the whole issue. Uh, That 
what are you glorying? The Judaizers are glorying something, and he's glorying in the cross of Christ. So the, the question we need to answer is, what does it mean to glory or boast in something? And, and this is interesting because typically when you hear the word boast in English, it has a very negative connotation, right? So if someone's boasting, they're prideful, um, they're elevating themselves um, in, a, in, in a negative way. And, and this phrase that Paul uses to glory, and it's sometimes used negatively in the New Testament, but uh, it can also be used in a positive sense like he uses it here. Uh, just in the verse before, he says, uh, the Judaizers want to boast about their flesh. Again, that's used, using it negatively. The Judaizers want to glory in their flesh. Paul wants to glory in the cross of Christ. So again, this phrase to glory, and I think is crucial because this is sort of the heart of the contrast Paul lays out between him and the false teachers. Um, so what does it mean to glory in something? I personally think probably the best word study I've ever read of this idea of glorying in something um, was penned by Jonathan Edwards in a section of his book, The End for Which God Created the World. Even if you don't read the whole book, that section is definitely worth your time because he convincingly argues uh, how the Bible uses this word glory and its different uses and how they all fit together. And I'm going to briefly summarize it here uh, just at a high level. But again, if you want the deeper uh, arguments, I would recommend you go back to Jonathan Edwards, The End for Which God Created the World. So by brief summary, the word glory uh, has this idea of weight when we're talking about it scripturally, weight. If something is glorious, the metaphor is it's heavy versus something uh, that's light is, is less glorious. Um, so if something is, is glorious, if it's weighty, it's pointing to something that is significant or valuable, whereas something that's not glorious is light. It's, it's not important. It's not as significant. So again, the, this, if you study it, particularly in the Old Testament, as the word glory is used, it points to the value, the greatness, and the importance of a thing. So those are sort of the three words. When you see the word glory in the Bible, those are the three words that I personally always have in my mind to tr sort of translate it to understand what it's saying. We're talking about the value, the greatness, or the significance of something. Okay, And so the, those are sort of the three words, and there are three ways that glory is used in Scripture. So sometimes glory is talking about something that's internal to a person. So when we say God is glorious, we're saying because of his attributes, because of who he is, he is inherently valuable, uh, great, and significant, right? So that's what we're talking about. God is glorious. That's what we're saying. God, by his very nature, is preeminently excellent. But glory can also be talked about as something external to a person. So when we read the verse, the whole world is full of God's glory, we're saying that God, he's, he's in, in, him, in and of himself, he's glorious, but then in the way he runs the world and the way he governs the world and the way he creates, he displays that glory. Um, so when you see glory used in that sense, it's talking about God uh, communicating that internal glory, externalizing it. A good metaphor that Edwards uses, like the sun, right? The sun in and of itself is, is bright and amazingly glorious, but it also has beams of light that illuminate other things. That's sort of the idea of you have internal glory, and you have that internal glory is externalized. The beam of light from the sun is bright, just as the sun is bright. So those are the first two ways the Bible uses glory. The final way is what we see in our text, to glory in something. Um, 
glory doesn't just mean someone is inherently valuable or that uh, that glory is externalized. It also refers to someone else seeing that glory and responding to it, all right? So to glory in something means that you see the value, the greatness, the significance of something, and then you respond to it accordingly in proportion to it. So that's why the word to glory in can be translated boasting. Um, you when you are boasting, um, if, even if you boast in something personal, what you're saying is, I did something excellent, and I'm telling others about it, right? So if you're, if you're bragging to someone about um, a professional achievement or something, if you're boasting in that, you're saying, I did something valuable or excellent, and I'm responding to that by telling you. So that's the same thing in summary. That's what Paul's saying here. I will never boast about anything except the cross of Christ. He's saying... I, I see the value, the significance, and the greatness of the cross of Christ, and I don't want to resp- and I want to respond accordingly to that. I don't want to, I don't want to elevate anything above that. And what's interesting, I think, um, if you do sort of a study of this idea of glorying or boasting, um, the Bible assumes that you and I will be boasting in something. It doesn't say we're neutral and we can choose whether to boast in Christ or this thing or that thing. In a sense, it almost presents that humans were made glory in something. Um, And if you think about it, uh, even in your own life, there's always something you're telling your spouse, your kids, your coworkers, like, this is great. You know, I saw a sunset today. That's great. Um, You know, there's you always find yourself in situations where you you see the value of something and then you respond by praising it or telling others about it. Um, I think what this points to is God made us to boast. God made us to glory in him the problem is we end up glorying in the wrong things, like the Judaizers. Uh, they gloried in their own uh, supposed righteousness through circumcision. And Jeremiah 9, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read it. I think Jeremiah, Jer- Jeremiah 9 famously sums this up. Um, this is what the Lord says, The wise man should not boast in his wisdom. The strong man should not boast in his strength. The wealthy man sh- must not bo- boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. So in other words, um, you might find yourself in a certain stage of life uh, where you have uh, wisdom, strength, wealth, and the temptation is to value and esteem and delight in your strength or wealth most highly, um, to, to, to say, uh, this is what I find valuable, this is what I find most excellent. But God says in Jeremiah, don't do that. That's a sin. Instead, boast in me. That's the alternative. The alternative God gives is, you know, you're boasting yourself. It's not to say, don't boast in anything. It's instead to say, no, glory in me. See my value. See my excellence. Respond to my value. Respond to my excellence. Don't get the boasting off of yourself and get it on to, to the proper object, which is me and my glory. Again, that's, if you read Romans 1 and you read it carefully, that's what sort of the of idolatry, right? We exchange the glory of God to worship other things. Instead of, as we're created for, seeing how great God is and responding accordingly, we end up going off to lesser things and worshiping those instead. So Paul is saying, this is what I do to the cross of Christ. I may God for, God forbid that I ever value or uh, say something is greater than the cross of Christ. This is the supremely valuable thing to Paul, and this is why 
Paul is so bent on combating these Judaizers. The false gospel that they're preaching isn't just evil because it isn't true or it sends people to hell, which it does. We've talked about that repeatedly through this study. Uh, This false gospel is evil also because it devalues the true gospel. It devalues the work of Christ. Um, I, I think it was Doug, but probably multiple people have said it throughout this study. If you add human works to the gospel, uh, you end up making what Jesus did on the cross less important. You end up making it less valuable in and of itself. So it's sort of subtraction by addition, as other people have said. You turn the true gospel that says you and I were wholly helpless and evil, and then you add, well, but also we can do these works to make ourselves right. And the question you have to ask, like, as you just sit and read this text logically, which gospel is more glorious? Which gospel shows how amazing God is more? A gospel of Jesus died just to help you out a little, or a gospel of you were dead and Christ resurrected you? And I think that's why Paul is so passionate about this issue. It's not just an intellectual, it's not just a moral issue. It's the fact that these people are elevating something that should not be elevated above the cross of christ and that is he says god forbid that i should ever do that god forbid that i should ever make much of human effort or human works it's personal to paul and you see how paul applies this idea personally in the verse the world has been crucified to me through the cross and i to the world so so that's the reason i want to elevate anything above the cross of christ um so what's paul saying here he says, I, I, I can't elevate anything about the cross of Christ. Not as a, not, I can't elevate my ability. I can't elevate circumcision because none of those things ultimately did anything for Paul. So you have this idea of the world. And I think um, uh, Bob and Bill in teaching through John and 1 John respectively have done a really good job of explaining what does the Bible mean when it says the world. It, it's referring to this evil world system. It's not saying literally, you know, I'm in the world, you're in the world right now. But the sinful world system that's in rebellion to God. Uh, And this word system, I think one of the most helpful definitions I've ever heard of of this word system is uh, something that gives the same output no matter the input. Right, so if you have like a machine system, you you want the same output every time. If you're on assembly line, doesn't matter whether there's small defects, you want the same output no matter what's going in the conveyor belt. At a spiritual level, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the world. We understand every human being's individually made uniquely in the image of God, but in this evil world system, everyone ends up rebelling. <laughs> it's the same output. Doesn't matter whether you were born rich, poor, wise, stupid. In this evil world system, on your apart from the work of Christ, you're just going to be pumping out rebellion against God like everyone else. That's the evil world system. No matter what your uniqueness, you will ultimately end up sinning against God and joining in the rebellion like everyone else. So, what freed Paul from this world system? What freed from the world was it circumcision and in philippians you remember he gives a long list of sort of uh check marks he had before he came to christ you know he was circumcised the eighth day he was of the nation of israel tribe of benjamin hebrew of hebrews a pharisee um so paul had us beat for checking these boxes and he says that was not able to free him from the world it could not free him from his sin it was not circumcision, it was not his own ability, and he was obviously brilliant, or, and it wasn't his own effort that freed him from the world. He was zealous to persecute the church, but none of those could free him from uh, his sin and from the world. It was the cross of Christ. That's why Paul cannot boast or glory in anything but the cross. 
the cross of Christ was the only thing that could and that did solve Paul's fundamental problem. It freed him from the curse of sin and death, as we saw in Galatians 3. Every good thing in Paul's life came back to this reality, that Paul was freed by Christ's death on the cross from the curse of the law. And, and you think about it, nothing else could be more significant than that. Nothing could be uh, compared to that. Um, it wasn't through his own efforts that Paul was saved, so how could he elevate his own efforts above Christ? Paul was circumcised, and, why, and he saw that it couldn't save him from his fundamental problems, so why would he ele- ever elevate circumcision above the cross of Christ? The, the flesh didn't do anything for Paul, uh, the cross of Christ did everything. And, you know, to Paul, I, I think, if you think about his logic here, it makes perfect sense, right? So imagine if um, you had a, a really bad uh, perform- performance review at work. Um, would you then go and start boasting about that to your coworkers? Probably not. It would make no sense. That, that, that didn't do anything for you. Why would you value that um, highly? Or if you, if you were, remember back in your school days, if you got an A on a test and an F on a test, which one would you probably tell people about? Probably not the F. You probably wouldn't elevate that very highly. And in a spiritual sense, why would you elevate something that could not save you? Why would you elevate your works? Why would you elevate your own abilities when those things could not save you from a world system? Why would you boast in that or glory in anything else besides the cross of Christ? So that's sort of the logic of what Paul's saying. Um, Paul didn't want anything or anyone to be elevated above Christ because everything else didn't do what Christ did for him. Uh, Nothing solved his fundamental issues besides Christ's propitiation uh, that he received on the cross, that Paul received through Christ's death on the cross. So that's the first point. Paul's clarifying what he boasts in in contrast to what the false teachers are boasting in. So now verse 15, for both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. Again, like I said, this this sentence kind of summarizes Paul's entire thesis of the book. Circumcision and uncircumcision don't matter anything. What matters is a new creation. So again, the Judaizers are elevating circumcision. They're making it necessary for salvation. They're elevating it to a place that God never intended to be occupied. Um, and again, I think it's easy for us, you know, modern day America to, act, to sort of cross over this circumcision or uncircumcision issue. But at the time, you have to remember, circumcision was something prescribed by God. Like it, this wasn't just something they made up out of nowhere. This is something in the Old Testament law that they've been doing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And then Paul comes in and says, it doesn't matter at all. <laughs> like, goodness gracious, that's a pretty shocking statement that Paul makes um, in verse 15. It's a bold statement. He's telling uh, the church that it doesn't actually matter, something that has been practiced for hundreds of years in the nation of Israel. Christ is the issue, not circumcision. And you see that even in the New Testament, this is a hard pill to swallow. If you read through Paul's letters, he constantly goes back to this issue um, because it, it's, it culturally at the time it was just tough to understand that circumcision is not the issue. This word... Um, uh, mean nothing. Uh, you can you can translate it as it has no strength. It does not prevail. Um, so, in other words, Paul's saying there's no inherent spiritual power in being circumcised or in being uncircumcised. Um, 
Paul makes it clear in Romans and Ephesians that the Jews did have benefits. They had access to the oracles of God. Um, And if you were a Gentile, you were sort of cut off from those promises before Christ came. Um, But Paul's point here is being a Jew or a Gentile didn't automatically make you in a right relationship to God. Uh, Why would a Christian feel obligated to get circumcised when before God it didn't matter whether you were circumcised or not? You don't get any spiritual power from it. Circumcision does not solve your fundamental problems. So again, this ties back to what Paul said in verse 14. He's he's highlighting again the importance and the value of the cross of Christ. The circumcision or uncircumcision have no spiritual power. They have no power. They have no ability. So what does? And what Paul says is uh, what matters instead is a new creation. This word new has an idea of unprecedented. Um, Paul isn't talking about minor improvements. He's not talking about, um, you know, you're pretty good, but you need, you need to tweak a few areas of behavior and then you'll be great. He's talking about radical newness, a creature never before seen. So uh, again, Paul is highlighting the foolishness of circumcision. The, the state, the spiritual state of mankind is not such that you can simply cut off some physical foreskin and then you're in a better standing before God. That's, that's not where we're at biblically. That isn't our problem. Uh, the doctrine of the depravity of man as laid out in Scripture is crystal clear that we aren't fixer-uppers that need uh, a couple external works added or a couple behavior shifts. We are dead, we are a corpse, and we need new life. We need to be recreated. And so the question is, how can we become this new creation? Is it through circumcision? Is it through our own effort? And you remember that Paul uses a similar phrase in 2 Corinthians. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. So, so circumcision does not have any power or ability to breathe life into the dead corpse that is you and I spiritually. But Christ does have that power. Um, I think Matthew Henry has an excellent little quote here um, from his commentary. True religion does not consist in circumcision or uncircumcision, in being this or the other denomination of Christians, but it consists in our being new creatures, not having a new name or putting on a new face, but in our being renewed by the spirit of our minds and having Christ in us. This is of the greatest account with God. It's really good. It's not about a new face. It's not about, um, you know, taking on a new name. It's about having the spirit of Christ transform you and create in you spiritual life. What we need to stand before God is not surface level upgrades. We need to be transformed by Christ. And this is why Paul's only boast is in Christ. Nothing else in the world could make that happen. The question is not to Paul, in Paul's mind, are you circumcised or aren't you circumcised? The question is, are you in Christ or are you not? Do you have the newness of life in Christ or don't you? And so uh, th- there are two other verses as we read, you know, for both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. Um, there's two other times that Paul uses this, this um, terminology besides, um, you know, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Um, in chapter 5, verse 6, if you want to turn there real quickly. Chapter 5, verse 6, he has a similar statement. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. And then you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 7, 19, Paul says, circumcision does not matter, uncircumcision doesn't matter. What matters is keeping God's commands. Okay, so those are sort of three times where Paul uses the same structure. Uncircumcision or circumcision doesn't matter, but this does. 
So uh, in, in the three different conclusions he comes to, what matters is a new creation, faith working through love, and keeping God's commands. All three of those statements fit into this idea of what the Christian life really is. Through faith in Christ, you become a new creation, and then that faith is externalized in keeping God's commands through love of God and love of others. I think that's a good way of summarizing those three verses. Uh, Through faith in Christ, you become a new creation, and then you externalize that faith and demonstrate it and work out your salvation in the sense that you keep God's commands empowered by love for God and love for others. So the Christian life is one in which your mind and heart are fundamentally changed so that you believe in Christ and you live a life pleasing to God. That is what Christ does, and that's what circumcision does not do. Um, external works cannot produce that faith in your heart. Only the Spirit can. Uh, remember in John 1 um, that Christ came to those who had circumcision, now, the Jews. He, he came to his own, and what happened? The, his own did not receive him. So if there was any power in being circumcised, the whole nation of Israel would have believed immediately when Christ came, but they didn't um, because circumcision doesn't produce faith in you. Can external works produce love for God or love for others? Um, I think one of the points that in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 6 is the Judaizers uh, were promoting themselves because circumcision gave them an idea of pride. Um, So focusing on circumcision or external works um, doesn't actually foster love for others it fosters a, a you elevating yourself above others. It, um, <clears throat> and then finally, um, can external works give you the ability to obey God's commands? Um, I, I think external circumcision is not what Paul says in chapter 5. He says that uh, the Christian life is spirit fighting the flesh. Um, you need to walk by the spirit not, to not carry out the desires of your flesh. Just being circumcised doesn't automatically give you that ability. Um, you need the spirit. So again, if you step back, this, fi- this verse 15 is sort of Paul's final conclusion on the whole matter. Circumcision and uncircumcision have no spiritual power, but if you want to become a new, you, you need a new life, and that life is only provided through the cross of Christ. So uh, those are the first two things. So Paul boasts only in the cross of Christ, and uh, the, the cross of Christ is the only way f- through which you and I can receive true spiritual life, not circumcision. So finally, verses 16 through 18, we have a benediction as Paul closes his letter. May peace come to all those who follow this standard and mercy to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble because I bear on my body scars for the cause of Christ. Brothers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So first he says, may peace come to all who follow this standard. So this word for standard is where we get our word canon, same word. So it's this idea of a straight read, like a ruler, a yardstick. Um, it's, it's something that you compare other things to. It's the ground truth, so to speak. Um, so, so what's the standard he's talking about here? Uh, peace come to all those who follow this standard. Um, I think he's referring back to, I mean, he could be referring to everything he's just been talking about in Galatians, obviously. But I think more immediately he's talking about the, the, the canon, the truth, that circumcision has no spiritual power. You need to be a new creation. I think that's what he's referring to. Um, he pronounces peace on those who hold fast to that truth. And I think by implication, there's sort of two things he's, he's pushing on the Galatians. First, that the Galatians need to start being discerning. You know, if you have a canon, you, 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 the way you use it is, this is the truth, I'm hearing other things, how does that compare with this truth? So by saying, 
peace to those who actually hold to this truth, I think there's an implicit idea of, you know, the Galatians need to start using this canon to be discerning against the false teachers. They need to recognize that if it's true that circumcision or uncircumcision have no spiritual power, these false teachers need to be booted out. They need to be tossed out along with their doctrine. Uh, You recall in Ephesians, he talks about um, you don't want to be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. The alternative to that is holding fast to a fixed standard um, to anchor you, and that's what Paul's talking about here, the standard of Christ and his cross, not works. <clears throat> I think a second implication here, he says, peace come to all those who follow this standard. The Judaizers who do not follow this standard don't actually have peace. Um, it's a warning to those who are departing from the gospel. If you don't hold fast to the standard, if you actually believe that circumcision is earning you merit with God, you're not going to be finding peace because that's a false gospel, and true peace only comes through the cross of Christ. So there you have it. Sort of, to, you, you have a, a reminder that the uh, the Galatians need to be holding to the standard to be discerning, and then you have uh, a warning: if you depart from the standard, you're not going to have the peace that's promised. And then you have this phrase: "and mercy to the Israel of God." <clears throat> There's sort of two interpretations to this phrase. Um, Israel of God, and they're very closely related. Um, the first is it's referring to believing ethnic Jews. Um, the second interpretation is that Paul's referring to ethnic Jews who believe and Gentiles who believe uh, both within the church. The commonality between these two is uh, th- they both contain the idea of believing Jews, Jews who aren't just externally circumcised but actually believe in the gospel. And I, I think it's important to note the, con, the context. Um, this phrase, Israel of God, seems to be a, another contrast Paul's throwing out. Um, Paul's implying that there's an Israel of God and there's an Israel not of God, if you will. Um, the Israel of God, no matter how you interpret it, is, uh, are believers in Christ, while the Israel not of God are those who are merely circumcised but who don't believe in Christ. Um, like Paul says in Romans, not all descended from Israel are Israel. So I think Paul's drawing attention to the point that the Israel of God is the Israel that believes in Christ and is a new creation, not just the Israel that's merely circumcised. Um, Remember, in Paul's time to be part of Israel, the nation, you needed to be physically circumcised. Like, you had to be. If you were a Gentile convert, you had to be physically circumcised to to join that sort of religion. Paul's point here is that to be part of the Israel of God, you need to believe in Christ. That's the deciding factor, not circumcision, belief in Christ. So whether this phrase refers to those who are just ethnic Jews to believe in Christ or refers to believing Jews and Gentiles, you can discern that in your own study. If you want to talk with me about my thoughts offline, you can. But the, don't miss the main point here. Paul's, again, contrasting. There's, it's, it's not just about circumcision. That's how you become part of ethnic Israel, but the Israel of God, the deciding factor is, do you believe in Christ? I I, I would refer you to Philippians 3, 2 through 3. Watch out for dogs, watch out for evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. So again, don't be led astray by false teachers like the Judaizers. They want to boast in their flesh, Instead, serve the Lord through the Spirit, boast in Christ alone, and don't trust in your own works. So now, 17 through 18, the final two verses in Galatians. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, because I bear on my body scars for the cause of Christ. Brothers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. 
Um, remember in verse 12, Paul says one of the motivations for the, the Judaizers is they want to avoid persecution for the cross of Christ. Uh, Paul says, uh, I, I have been persecuted for the cross of Christ. Um, it, again, if you're Paul and you say circumcision or uncircumcision mean nothing at his day and age, uh, you're going to get persecuted. That's like a guarantee. And you see that in Acts. The Judaizers were avoiding that persecution by combining circumcision with Christian doctrine, but Paul was not concerned with self-preservation. He didn't compromise to make the gospel more palatable to his generation. And again, at his time, if you want to make it more palatable, you just add circumcision. Everyone was sort of on board with that, but Paul wasn't willing to compromise. Um, You remember when he says to the Jews, I became a Jew, what that clearly doesn't mean is he, you know, started preaching circumcision. That, That doesn't mean you compromise on the gospel. You don't add things to it. Here at the end of Galatians, he says, I'm not just saying these things. I didn't just write you a whole letter of heady doctrine for you to consider whether or not it's true. I actually have suffered for this. I've actually borne uh, the results of preaching this gospel. He actually had conviction that what he was teaching was true um, because he was willing to actually suffer for it, um, unlike the Judaizers. And then in the final benediction in verse 18, he prays that the grace of Christ would be with the church. I think this is kind of a a really sweet final verse when you look at the tone of the rest of the book. You know, he's been pretty dogmatic. He's been pretty um, uh, direct in his uh, address to the Galatians. But at the end, he calls them brothers, again, pointing to the fact that he believes at least a subset of the Galatians are indeed true believers in Christ. And then he points them back to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which again, that's every Christian's hope, including Paul's. Um, One of Richard Sibbs' most famous quotes is, there's more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. And I think that's sort of the note that Paul ends here. Yes, the Galatians are being led astray by false teaching. Yes, they're being tempted to compromise. But if they would turn and boast again in the cross of Christ instead of their own works, there is grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if if we step back and summarize these last verses Um, You know, we saw that Paul only boasts in the cross because it was the way he became a new creation. It wasn't through being circumcised. It wasn't by keeping the law. It wasn't through his works. It was through the cross of Christ. And I I think for us, the the reality we we have to internalize and meditate on is it's only through the cross that we have right standing before God. Therefore, the cross needs to be preeminent in our lives. It can't be secondary. Um, it can't be the thing we uh, value pretty highly, but not the most highly. And, and so I think the question before we go into discussion to sort of wrestle with is what do we boast in? What do we value most highly in our lives? Um, as I was thinking about the answer to that question, it's like, man, I, if, if I sat down and made a list of the things I value in my life, there's, you know, family, my job, I love my job, I love, um, you know, the, the good gifts that God's given me. But as you think through all the good gifts God's given you, remind yourself that all of those things, your family, your job, the, your intelligence, the opportunities you have in life, none of those can save you from sin and death. Those are all good things. You should praise God for them. But the reason you cannot elevate them above the cross of Christ is your family could not deal with your sin. Uh, your job couldn't save you from the reality of death and hell. Christ did on the cross. That's the only thing that can save you. And when you start thinking that way, when you start you know, reminding yourself of what your real problems are, that's when you start seeing the value of the cross of Christ. 
We live in such a shallow, self-focused culture where we think our needs are food, more money, more comfort, etc., and so forth. If you think those are your needs, then the cross of Christ isn't going to be that interesting because Jesus didn't come to solve any of those problems fundamentally. But if, as you study Scripture and you remind yourself daily that your fundamental need is you are a sinner in a world created by a holy God who will hold you to account, if, if that's the fundamental reality that you keep in front of you, that's the way you start seeing the cross of Christ to be more valuable because that's what Christ did. He came to defeat the power of sin and death. He came to rise you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And you're never going to value Christ as highly as he should be valued if you focus too much on felt needs instead of what the Bible says your real needs are. I think that's, if you if you look through the writings of Paul, I think that's sort of, I don't want to say the secret or the key, but this was a guy who couldn't stop boasting about Christ, but he also couldn't stop thinking about the reality of who he was before Christ and what Christ did for him. That's why he can say, God forbid I should never boast on the cross of Christ, because he was, he that reality was present in his life. He, he, he knew it. You read it in his letters. He's constantly talking about being the chief of sinners, constantly talking about Christ. And, and I think to the degree that we lose sight of what our real needs are, that's to the degree that we're going to value other things. We're going to value money, family, comfort above Christ. If we remind ourselves as a body, as a, as a bunch of family units, as individuals, that our real needs of, of our sin being dealt with and the reality that all of us are going to die and stand before the Lord, if we remind ourselves of those realities and then read what God has provided in Christ, then we can start boasting in the cross of Christ and valuing the greatness and the significance of that more highly than other things.